TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. I'm your host, Ezra Wheeler. Today on the show, we're going to discuss the quirky world of jug band music, which first sprung out of Louisville, Kentucky in the early 1900s and made its way to Memphis uh, around 1910. So while Louisville deserves the credit for inventing this unique type of music, it was really Memphis that perfected the art form and made it a cultural force in the first quarter of the 20th century. So as the name suggests, jug bands featured a hodgepodge of strange homemade instruments, most notably, of course, a jug, which very often was a large empty whiskey bottle that was blown on to kind of produce a bass sound. Other common instruments used by jug bands included a washboard, um, a washtub bass, which was essentially a metal tub with normally a broomstick and a string attached to it. It's normally a proper string instrument, like a guitar or a banjo, and then a percussive instrument, ranging from spoons to even bones. So, of course, there were no real rules, um, so other novel instruments, like kazoos, harmonicas, and even saw blades were also used, kind of depending on the particular band. So, uh, these days, I think the term jug band tends to kind of elicit the idea of rural whites in Appalachia, maybe kind of dressed in overalls with straw hats, I'd Something like the Country Bears, maybe. But in reality, jug band music was produced primarily by African Americans in southern cities. And uh, that was certainly the case in Memphis, where most jug bands were found along Bill Street, which, of course, was kind of the black Main Street at the time and certainly the the center of music in the city. So anyway, today we're going to focus on what is probably the most popular and influential jug band of all time, which is Will Shade's Memphis Jug Band. So the Memphis Jug Band has been referred to as the first good time band of the blues era, and I think uh, after we listen to a few tracks, it's pretty easy to see why. So as we'll hear, the group has the sound kind of this rollicking and drunken party, real loose, real fun, which is due both to the unique instrumentation and also the fact that the Memphis Jug Band was, in fact, the choice du jour for a good time in Memphis back in the 1920s and 30s. So for an example of that, let's kick this party off with a song from the Memphis Jug Band called Memphis Shakedown from 1927. So before we get into the story of the Memphis Jug Band, we, uh, we need to start with a man named Will Shade, who was both the founder and the leader of the group, and also the one constant member throughout the Jug Band's many different lineups. 
So Will Shade was born in Memphis in 1898, and for most of his life, he was called Son Brimmer by family and friends, which I mention only because that name uh, is actually used occasionally in song titles and writing credits. So if you see Son Brimmer on anything, it is Mr. Will Shade. Anyway, Shade spent his younger days kind of hanging around Bill Street and really immersed himself into the jazz and blues scene and uh, actually learned to play guitar down there from a street musician named Tiwi Blackman, who I believe actually was uh, a member of the band during some point. Anyway, before long, uh, Shade went out on his own and started busking on Beale and also traveled around the South as a member of a medicine show, which is really where he learned to play some, like, Instruments like the harmonica, the washboard, and some other rudimentary instruments that would kind of eventually make their way into his band. It was also during his travels when Shade probably first became familiar with Louisville band Clifford Hayes Jug Blowers, which apparently is what planted the initial seed in his mind for founding a jug band. Way back in Memphis, uh, sometime in the early 1920s, Shade and his wife Jenny were performing in a club when a man with the colorful name of Roundhouse came in and asked if he could join the band, if he could uh, jam out with him. So they agreed, and Roundhouse pulled out a large jug from his bag and started playing it. And according to Will Shade, the crowd just went nuts, and the very next day he decided to go about forming his own proper jug band. So uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to name the members of the band, uh, mainly because the lineup changed almost constantly, sometimes literally on a day-to-day basis. But the very first group Shade assembled included himself on guitar and harmonica, Will Weldon on guitar, Ben Ramsey on kazoo, and Charlie Polk on the all-important jug. So one of the things that uh, differentiated them was, unlike the jug bands of Louisville, who essentially played jazz music, probably a little rougher considering the instrumentation, but it was essentially jazz. Uh, the Memphis Jug Band, they really specialized in country blues, and because of that, they quickly became a really popular attraction on Bill Street. So in early 1927, the group was discovered by a man named Ralph Peer, who was the owner of Memphis's Victor Records, and he signed them to a contract fairly quickly. And in uh, February of that year, February of 1927, the group entered the studio and laid down their very first four tracks, which... Kind of surprisingly, it made them not only the first band to make a record in Memphis, but also within the five-state area of Tennessee, Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, and Kentucky, which I I honestly found kind of shocking. Anyway, that session was followed by a handful of other recordings throughout the year, Um, and so I wouldn't call these records smash hits or anything, but they certainly sold well locally, uh, especially among black audiences, and the success of the recordings allowed them to get out, tour a bit, um, which was obviously pretty crucial promotion during this era. So at one point, the band was even invited to join Bessie Smith on tour when she was arguably the biggest blues artist on earth, but unfortunately that would prove to be a fairly short-lived stint because during one of the Bessie Smith's concerts, one of the Memphis Jug Band members, uh, their snake, which I couldn't figure out if it was a pet snake. It almost sounded like they used it during shows. Either way, One of the members' snakes escaped, scared out the entire crowd. Bessie Smith was apparently standing on top of a piano, and that effectively ended their time on that tour. Anyway, in the fall of 1928, the following year, the group added guitar, banjo, and mandolin player named Charlie Burse. Um, 
which I wanted to mention for a few reasons, pretty notable. So for one, Charlie Burst was really a masterful musician, and he helped to bring some complexity to the band's sound, and also added more of a jazzy influence, where before they were pretty much straight-up blues. On the other hand, Burst was also kind of the temperamental opposite of Will Shade, who was known as being level-headed and business-minded, and more of a wild man. And I think his exuberance really helped to enliven the band's music with kind of this new energy. So in fact, uh, in his book, The Country Blues, author Samuel Charters wrote, quote, the heart of the Memphis Jug Band was the musicianship and the enthusiasm of Shade and Burst. So for an example of that vigor that Charlie Burst brought to the band, let's take a quick listen to a song called Insane Crazy Blues, which really has his fingerprints all over it. So one of the most unique things about the Memphis Joke Band was really how each individual member brought their own unique styles to the group's songs. So we've already discussed how uh, Will Shade kind of brought that country blues influence to the band and how Charlie Burst brought that musical complexity and energy, but other members also left their stamp on certain tracks. So for example, vocalist and multi-instrumentalist Charlie Bozo Nickerson, as his name suggests, was uh, really known for his silly and comedic songs, while fiddler Charlie Pierce's playing really kind of conjured up this Appalachian hoedown feel. So I think that band's ability to play that wide range of songs was really crucial to their success and one of the primary reasons that the Memphis Jug Band eventually became a big hit with white society as well, which of course was a bit uh, strange during this time. Um, most notably, one of their most notable fan was probably Memphis Mayor Edward Boss Crump, um, and he would often actually have the band at his home on occasion to play. In addition to playing at Mr. Crump's house, the band would perform at country clubs, uh, parties, fancy parties at the Peabody Hotel and other fine establishments. And they also became a pretty popular attraction down at Mardi Gras in New Orleans, where apparently they would travel every year to perform. So I think it should be mentioned that the band's deep repertoire of music and their mastery of different forms, it certainly came from the different backgrounds, but it's also the result of a really grueling rehearsal schedule. So, while the band often sounds extremely loose, I'm sure you've noticed so far that there's kind of these random shouts and hollers on the songs we've heard, they're in actuality really disciplined and scripted. In fact, Will Shade would often have the band rehearse their songs upwards of 15 times before putting them on wax, and every single note played, and even the, like I said, the seemingly random shouts that all been really meticulously arranged. And I, I think that that fact, the fact that they were so tightly controlled yet able to produce music that had this chaotic energy is maybe their most defining trait. 
Anyway, the Memphis Jug Band, they continue to make records at a pretty unbelievable pace. And uh, their recordings far outnumber the recordings from any other Jug Band of that era or really any other era. So in the eight years between 1927 and 1934, the group produced close to 100 commercial recordings and also backed artists like Memphis Many on some of their early recordings. So due to the sheer volume of the music they were producing, they also made several recordings uh, under different names for different studios. So some of the other names you could find the Memphis Jug Band playing under was the Piccaninny Jug Band, the Memphis Sheiks, the Jolly Jug Band, and the Memphis Sanctified Singers. So kind of a loose collection there. of, uh, And there, there were several more I left at the Dallas Peanut Boy. There were some ridiculous ones in there. Anyway... Some folks even claim that they were so popular um, and that their membership changed so frequently that there were actually two different bands at times calling themselves the Memphis Jug Band that would exist simultaneously with one playing local shows and then the other hitting the road and traveling just to maximize profit, I, I suppose. Anyway, before we move on with their story, I do want to pause real quick and hear a track that actually features Memphis Mini from 1930 called Cocaine Habit Blues. And if that song sounds familiar when we hear it, it's probably due to the fact that it's been widely covered from everyone from Woody Guthrie to the White Stripes to Old Crow Medicine Show. But I really don't think anyone did it better than this, than this original. This is probably my favorite track from him. Anyway, this is the Memphis Jug Band with Cocaine Habit Blues. Memphis Jug Band continued to grow in popularity, and as other musicians kind of became privy to the money they were making, which was actually quite good for the time, an explosion of jug bands uh, really sprang up in the city. So some of the more prominent of these included the South Memphis Jug Band, the Bill Street Jug Band, Jack Kelly's Jug Busters, and Gus Cannon's Jug Stompers. Unfortunately, just as the good times were really rolling, they would come to a pretty... Uh, pretty quick end so like so many musicians of that era the memphis jug band was really greatly affected by the great depression of the 1930s and pretty much overnight the gigs recordings and money came to an abrupt halt 
1934, the group made their final recording for OK Records. Um, which really included some of their best and most beloved songs, but that would pretty much spell the end for them. From there, everything really continued to go downhill for the group and its members. Uh, band leader Will Shade, he had managed to amass a nice pile of money over the years, especially for a black blues musician, but as the Depression grew worse and the demand for his music dwindled, he pretty much ended up losing everything, including his house. And sadly, the other members of the band didn't fare much better over the years. Um, and as time went on, their contributions to music was largely forgotten. But fortunately, that, that wasn't quite the final chapter in their book. So in 1956, uh, full 22 years after their final recordings, Samuel Charters, who I quoted earlier, um, he worked for the Smithsonian Folkways label, which kind of focused on finding roots music, older music, and getting it on wax. Uh, he came to Memphis to track down and record some of the musicians from that city's, from the city's bygone era. And while he was here, he tracked down Will Shade and Charlie Burst and found them both living in these rundown tenements near Bill Street and convinced them to record a few pieces for the Folkway label, which, you know, brought new audiences into their music, gained them a few fans. And a couple of years later, they were actually invited to perform on a TV special about W.C. Handy's life. So I want to take a quick listen to that special. Uh, it's pretty neat, but I do apologize for the poor audio quality. As Jansen has said, the jazz addict is not likely to find on Beale Street today very much of what the music historian calls the style of the 20s. But there is a kind of music which still continues the feeling of the past. It's as old as Wee's and is authentic. And you can still hear it played by an occasional wandering minstrel or two the guise of a jug band, with or without a jug. For example, take the work of Charlie Burst and Will Shade, two practicing musicians of Beale Street, 1958. How about an example, Charlie? Oh, yes, we've been here a long time. We'd like to give you a little synopsis of what you used to hear when Yancey was here. You'd like to hear one of Fine. <coughs> I turned down Bill. I tried to find her and she said they called me. That, that little bit of late career recognition, the members of the Memphis Jug Band really ended up living the remainders of their lives in relative obscurity and indisputable poverty. Sad as that is, as so often happens, their music did find a way to live on and inspire future generations of musicians, most notably uh, bands of the 1960s like The Love and Spoonful and The Grateful Dead. Um, in fact, the Grateful Dead's very first song, I think it was Lovin' Lovin'. Uh, I'm not a Grateful Dead fan. Anyway, their, their very first track was actually a, a cover of the Memphis Jug Band. Also, Will Shade uh, became, became a legend as a harmonica player, and 
Other blues harmonica greats like Charlie Musselwhite really kind of helped to keep his name alive, gave him that credit as an influence. More recently, though, the band's music has also reached and resonated with artists that you may not expect. I certainly didn't. For example, hip-hop legend Nas actually recently covered the group song On the Road Again for the PBS show American Epic, giving it an updated sound. Um, we'll hear that in just a second. He actually performs it with Jack White and the Rockin' Tours. So a funny little mi- uh, matchup there, but... Let's do a, let's listen to an interview with Nas. He's going to speak about how the band's music resonated with him, and then that'll be followed up with his a quick clip of his rendition of On the Road Again. Well, the Memphis Jug Band, it sounds like something today. And these guys are talking about women carrying guns, protecting their honor, chasing after some woman who's done them dirty. This is not high society, black folks. This is the down under you know, street, wild black folk that that uh, they're singing about. And it's the same as today. It's the same as rap music today. She's on the road again. Shows you born. Born and natural born. It's She's on the road again. Shows you born. Born and natural born. It's on the road again. Your friend at your house just arrested. Next thing he wanna know where your husband's at She says, I don't know, he's on his way to the pen Come on, mama, let's get on the road again She's on the road again This music from Memphis, they were rapping about street life and gangster life and hustling and just a dark side of the world I'm with my black woman let me tell you why, why? black women's evil do things on the slide she look for your supper to be good and hot she never put the neck bone in the pot she's on the road again it just goes to show me that like rapping is a natural poetic thing it's always been here as long as there was english and black people you know what i'm saying there was rap yeah Well, I hope you enjoyed that quick exploration of the Memphis Jug Band. Huh. I think that in, in addition to just being fun and enjoyable, it's really a perfect representation of that kind of DIY ethos that I think underlines so much of great Memphis music. Kind of that idea that the only thing stopping you from making great music is <clears throat> willpower and maybe a little ingenuity. And I also think there's something cool about Jug Band music and that it's pretty radical and it's kind of egalitarianism i mean allows anyone and everyone to participate as long as you have the chops now i'm guessing that one of these days i'm going to take the time to talk about some of the other great jug bands we didn't have time to talk about today Uh, most notably gus cannon's jug stompers who were also pretty influential but in the meantime i definitely encourage you to go out there and explore some of that stuff on your own anyway now let's switch gears a little bit and head over to the crate uh where we go from time to time to Dig through the bins of vinyl to find some of the greatest album in Memphis music history. A little taste of uh, the one and only Al Green with the title track from his 1977 underrated classic, The Bell Album. So that was the track Bell. So in addition to being one of Al Green's finest albums, the Bell Album also really marked a major shift in his career and 
definitely remains his most idiosyncratic release, which is why I wanted to touch on it today. But before we get into the album itself, I think it's important to know where Al Green was at at this point in his career. So, late 70s, Al Green was still probably the biggest soul artist on earth, and he had just come off an incredible string of six number one albums and just countless hits, which I think constitutes one of the greatest runs in music history. That being said, uh, Al Green was also struggling to, with his personal life. He was struggling to reconcile his faith with kind of the rock star lifestyle he had been living over the previous few years. And that had all really come to a head in 1974 when that infamous incident that I'm sure you, you know about when his girlfriend of the time dumped burning grits on him while he was bathing and then took his gun and killed herself. So that uh, that's normally enough to make you, you know, look at your life with <laughs> with some fresh eyes. Anyway, by 1976, Al Green had fully committed to changing his life and decided to devote himself to the church. So he purchased the full gospel tabernacle in Whitehaven and became an ordained pastor where he remains today. So perhaps unsurprisingly, this kind of personal transformation he was going through also ended up leading to an artistic transformation. And that, uh, I think that good place to start our story is with the conversation he had with his long friend, uh, longtime friend and producer Willie Mitchell. So I'm going to let Willie tell that story. Here's a quick interview with Willie Mitchell explaining what exactly happened. After Al and I had made so many records, uh, he decided uh, he didn't want to sing any more love songs. And we discussed it. And he said uh, that he only wanted to sing gospel songs. So I, I said, well, Al, why don't, you, uh, why don't you do both of them? He said, no, I can't do them both. I got to do one thing. So I told Al, I said, well, Al, I really don't know anything about gospel music. Uh, I'm not uh, equipped. So he uh, started to record his own, produce his own records, uh, gospel records. So uh, after that conversation, Al Green was really left on his own for the first time in his career. Um, He was now without the architect of his signature sound, Willie Mitchell, and He's also lacking the backing of the high rhythm section, the great house band at high who had played on all of his major hits. Not only major hits, but literally every track he ever played. Uh, seemingly unbothered, though, Al Green set out on his own to create his first album without that incredible staff at high records. But instead of going somewhere else or replacing them with a whole new cast of characters, he really chose to play several of the major roles by himself, including producer, songwriter, and lead guitarist. So the result, as I'm, I'm sure you know, was became the Bell album, which really was a, a piece of music uh, just radically different from anything he had done prior and stands out from his discography for several reasons. So for one, Al Green uh, played acoustic guitar on several tracks, and not only does he play guitar for the first time, but it really takes center stage on a lot of the tracks, which was certainly a big change from his earlier hits, but when you listen to the the Bell album, I think uh, kind of becomes clear that maybe that talent should have been utilized earlier because he's unexpectedly pretty badass at the guitar. He also introduced some weird and novel instrumentation to the mixes, including 
an electronic keyboard called a polyphonic orchestron, and also an early rudimentary drum machine called a syndrome. Um, the album also had a newfound looseness to it um, that was certainly novel for Al Green, especially considering how well rehearsed and tight the high rhythm section had always been. So his songs were um, previously kind of known as being very pre precise and concise. The track on tracks on the Bell album were allowed to breathe a little bit more, I guess you could say, and they even meander at times, but I think almost always to good effect. He, he always brings it home when he needs to. But no change was bigger than the lyrical content of the album, which strayed away from love songs that had, you know, of course made him a star and instead focused on spiritual and religious themes. Uh, that being said, the Bella album is certainly not a gospel album. Uh, in fact, it's, it was considered his last secular album period until he came out with some new uh, material, I guess in the, when was it, early 2000s, mid 2000s, whatever. He did the stuff with Questlove, but everyone kind of assumed at the time that the Bell album was his final foray into secular music. Anyway, uh, despite it being a secular album, like I said, God and Faith certainly play a huge role, and I think it you can hear that Al Green really sounds liberated um, as he kind of walks that tightrope between the religious and the secular. And that's really true on songs like Chariots of Fire and I Feel Fine, which on first listen kind of sound like straight-up funk or soul tunes, but if you take in the lyrics, you kind of hear that, that deeper meaning. Anyway, when the album was released, it proved to be relatively disappointing in terms of sales, especially after you've had just a string of number one records. It only reached number 29 on the R&B charts. But uh, as time passed and listeners and critics and everyone else spent a little more time with the album, it really came to be seen as one of his crowning achievements. Uh, I think probably second only to his all-time classic album, Call Me. If nothing else, it's definitely his most personal album, both in terms of the content and the you know efforts that he put into it. And I think for that reason alone, it should be considered his most underrated album. So if you haven't listened to the Bell album before, or if you have and you were maybe just kind of turned off by its oddness, um, which I must admit I, it was kind of the case with me for a while, then I definitely encourage you to give it another spin. Um, so in my opinion, I think one of the things that that made that classic material he made with Willie Mitchell so powerful, and we've kind of touched on, on this on previous episodes, but that feeling of restraint that Willie Mitchell put, put on him and it always felt like Al Green was really kind of trying to break out, and it just wasn't allowed to. So you got those little squeals and that that kind of pushback. But that being said, there's also something really great about hearing Al Green being able to let loose. They kind of uncaged the beast, so to speak, and a lot of fun with that. Anyway, before we head over to the Mud Island mixtape, I do want to listen to one more track from the Bell album. This is Al Green with the song Chariots of Fire, which... I think it's probably one of my favorites in his entire catalog. Desire. 
wrap things up i just want to thank the good folks at arts memphis and the genium foundation for their generous support as well as a thanks to all of you out there who take the time to listen each week if you haven't yet please rate and subscribe to the podcast on itunes stitcher google play or wherever you get your podcast or you can always visit us at our home on the oamnetwork.com slash memphis musicology Welcome back to the Mud Island Mixtape, the, the place we come at the end of each episode to add another classic Memphis track to the mix. So today I want to play a song from a somewhat mysterious yet pretty influential, at least lo- uh, locally, pretty influential group that oozes at least a bit to the Memphis Jug Band. Um, so I'm talking about Mud Boy and the Neutrons, who were a super group of sorts, if you can apply that term to a band very few people have ever heard of. And uh, that band was composed of legendary Memphis musicians Jim Dickinson, Sid Selvage, Lee Baker, and Jimmy Crossweight. So, if you don't know these guys, I'm sure that they'll all get their own bios told at some point during this podcast. Not this episode, but in the future. And in fact, I'm actually working on an episode about Sid Selvage right now, but Either way, each of them were respected songwriters and musicians, and they were all really had unbelievably eclectic influences. And I think all of those influences ended up making their way into the music of Mudboy and the Neutrons. Anyway, the band, they first emerged at a Halloween show in Memphis in 1973. And I think it was probably immediately clear that they were unlike anybody else making music at the time. So the group, they... Specialized in, I guess, what you could call forceful blues and rock, but also had influences from everything from soul to country to, yes, jug bands. Um, in fact, Jimmy Crossweight's primary role in the band was as a washboard player, and Lee Baker had previously worked with uh, jug band legend Gus Cannon, so there's their credentials right there. Anyway, for the first decade or so of their existence, the group remained largely underground and really only appeared every once in a great while for local live shows, but I think that only helped to add to their mystique. And it wasn't until 13 years after that initial show in 1986 that the band released their debut album called Known Felons in Drag, which is just a wonderful title, and also the album that I want to pull from today. So like I said, I promise that one of these days we'll revisit Mudboy and the Neutrons to tell their full story, but Today I'm just going to leave you with their 1986 track, Codine, which best I can tell is a mispronunciation of the narcotic codeine, as you'll hear from the lyrics. Y'all take care and I'll catch you next time.
proceeding is an Elm production. For more information, go to theoamnetwork.com.